welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Welcome to the podcast. This is Deacon Jacob. Father John. From St. Joe's House, because... We're back full swing. We are back full swing, and it was, a, it was a blast today. Uh, a blast of full swingness, <laughs> I should say. It wasn't that fun. Um, but I am uh, going to be a little low-key tonight, coming off of... Father Hoke was like, are you losing your voice, brother? This is our German scripture professor. And I was like, yes, losing it. Are you sick? Oh, no, no. I don't want... You know, I'm not going that far. And he's like, how did you lose your voice? I was like, I just came off a 96-hour party. <laughs> for my 40th birthday yes happy uh entrance into the next decade thank you i've officially arrived and i'm feeling uh, quite old but it was an amazing <laughs> amazing weekend well the meme that i wanted to make for father john that i was too lazy to make was uh the scene from lord of the rings when they're talking about breakfast and second breakfast elevensies afternoon tea dinner supper it was like hey you already had a party yeah but we're getting ready for a second second party, party. Do you think he knows about second party? <laughs> I don't think so, Pip. No. Elevensies party, afternoon tea party, dinner party. <laughs> it was. It was all the parties, all the things. It was amazing. Family party, companions, seminary. celebration, seminary. Yeah, it was epic. It was such a great, a great weekend, and there's just the, the Lord has you gotta blessed our lives. The big moments, like forty. Forty. It's good to go nice. hard. But then you're like, uh, Phil Bartline said it was uh, 40 for 40. It was 40 parties <laughs> for your 40th birthday. He's scared for what the future holds. But uh, yeah, so here we are. Uh, and then uh, we started bright and early this morning, 6 a.m. Holy Hour, and we are rolling into the semester. So I will yep. recover after uh, a little uh, sleep. 12 and a half hour day since Holy Hour. That's true. Um, I have a, a great achievement of my 30s is oh. now under my belt. Excellent. Coming back from World Youth Day, I flew through D.C. and stayed with some of my friends, uh, Joe and Linda Ann, and I went to the pool with them and their kids, and I was doing, I was like holding their, their kids up over my head, doing Superman, and then like crashing them into the pool. Right. And the lifeguard came over and reprimanded me, which is exciting because now I've been reprimanded by a lifeguard in four decades. Four decades. So. Do you remember the one in your 20s? Yeah, I was uh, over-bouncing the... Uh, diving board. Oh, uh, okay. So, you know, they usually give you like the one jump and then you got to go. We were yeah. like trying to get major air. It's like, only one. I look forward to what you do in your 60s to get <laughs> reprimanded by a lifeguard. That'll be very interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. Got to put the floaties back on. You'll drown. Well, you guys had quite the trip to Lisbon and your podcast really was a nice little kind of expose of little, the yeah. craziness of. Uh, After total sleep deprivation, at that point, I don't think I'd eaten food. Or maybe I just got back from my first meal in like 36 hours. Crazy. Um, that whole two weeks, because I was there a day before the group got there, the whole week there, and then a week after. I was averaging like 12 or 13 miles walking a day. Yeah, that's... Um, we were just wrecked. Yeah. But it was wonderful. Yeah. Did you run into anybody random, you know, providentially, but random? Because when, when I went to Belize Day in 2002 in Toronto, in 2005 in Cologne ran into some very unexpected people, like the one guy I knew in France, you know, <laughs> like just walk into him on the street, and it was crazy. Uh, nothing too crazy. I saw a couple college friends. It was mostly at the, the USCCB, like, U.S. gathering uh -huh. at the park on, I think, the second night of, like, the actual World Youth Day events. Um, Bishop Barron was giving a talk, and 
Archbishop Aquila was there and stuff. So a bunch of the U.S. groups were there. So I saw friends from college. Um, we saw the other, you know, the other Denver guys. We saw guys from Phoenix. We saw I saw uh, Father Tyler from Helena. But I was walking through the crowd and I just hear Jake Machado, and I turn. And she, I don't recognize this girl. And she goes, I went to high school with your brother. Oh, man. <laughs> My younger brother. Yeah. And then I'm not five minutes later. I get, you're Joe's brother. Yeah. From a totally different group. Uh, Benedictine grad who was at school with Joe. And so it's like my younger brother is getting me the recognition out in World Youth Day. And that's when I realized I'm no longer a youth. Yes. Because all my little brother's friends, eight years, nine years different. Are actually at World Youth Day. They're the youth at World Youth right. Day. <laughs> and they're recognizing me as his brother. I think technically um, in your 30s, you're allowed to go to World Youth Day, you know, as a, as a Yugen. All of 30? Uh, I bl- I read that somewhere, I but um, once you're US, my age, we cut off young adults at like 35, 38. Oh yeah, well, we're got, pretty cruel. You got a little life left in you. So, well, Joe Machado, I don't know if you've shared that, but is now in seminary. Yeah, now that he's in, I guess we can say that. Yeah, uh, the entire time he was in application, and yeah, we didn't want to talk about up. it. We didn't, but my little brother started the propedeutic year. Yeah, it used to be called the spirituality year, the first year here at St. John Vianney. Uh, so that's very exciting. It's fun to have lunch with him today. At, it's crazy, and he looks a lot like you, but he's he's a different personality for sure. Yep. Yeah. And his his beard is a little redder. Yep, that's he's true. A, he's a little taller, a little thinner. Is he taller? Yeah, he's, he's got about thinner. he's got about two inches, maybe. But he can grow into that, you know. Yeah. Oh, seminary I'll teach him to build. grow into that. Right. We'll <laughs> stock him up over so the years. So that's to very come. exciting, actually. Yeah. He um, that's the first time I guess people. We'll hear about that. There you go. Now that he, he actually arrived on the yep. first day. We took so. the uh, 15 new guys in the whole seminary, so 75 guys, and we went uh, camping for last uh, for uh, three days last week, which is something we've done every year since I was a deacon. Uh, so 13 trips. And uh, Deacon Jacob is also, not to just brag on him, but student body president. So, hey yo, you know, yep. Which means I don't really do a whole lot. I just he's point to the other head. things. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Like a figure, of, you know, of state. Which or wild? So the the community life rep, which is another position that's elected here, uh, they do a lot of work, and especially on the camping trip, they plan it, and it's, I mean, it's dialed in, it's efficient. We've got kind of everything set up, so you know what you need to do, but it's still a lot of work. And I did that two years ago, I think. So it's actually kind of like this nice long line of the yeah. the, the guy who planned the uh, camping trip. You know, we, we could trace we could trace that back thirteen years to you. And uh, it's always kind of like, you know, you look at that guy and you're like, I, I know what you're going through. I always feel bad for like the, the random old couple that's just camping <laughs> for the week. And, and, and then 75 Hanyaks show up and just take over. And you got little Mexico on the one side. And so the mariachi music. And then you got just the Kansas boys playing pitch. And it's a couple just different fires going on. A, a loud long game of 21, which I had never played before, which I thought was never going to end, but it did, thanks to Cody Bliss. But uh, yeah, it was great. So we are uh, we're rolling. Semester's yeah. begun. You are entering your last year, which is crazy. It is crazy, but it's good. I have really enjoyed the spirit of the houses, the spirit of the seminary in general. I showed up here, and uh, we were recording. Father John was in a meeting beforehand, and so I went upstairs, and these guys are arguing over nature and grace yeah which is one of my favorites to argue um and we just sit down there's like five of us seminarians being total nerds arguing over metaphysics and 
ontology. It's good. Last <laughs> night we got into we're, we're on a big, I guess, a metaphysical kick this week because last night it was Larkin contra Mundum uh, at the end of my birthday dinner. <laughs> so Father Brian Larkin versus the world trying to kind of, I don't know. I don't know what he was up to, but he definitely had everybody against him. But we went late. And so I have no... I've got no dog in the fight. I've got no energy to fight you, so I'll just be, you know, consenting Good. to whatever you bring today. Good. So that's when that's when heretics are made, actually. Yeah, they just break down. <laughs> we, we need we need some contra. Yeah, some said contras, and that's the thing. When I get into an argument upstairs, I was just arguing, and some of the things I was arguing were pretty strong convictions that I have out of my own thought and reading and study, um, and assenting to professors who I know have done more than myself and then there's some other things where i'm like i've got a sense of this but i'm not quite sure how to and then there's other things that i kind of vehemently disagree with and will argue and sometimes i argue out of those things other times i will just argue the contrary right which father john knows actually is more than sometimes and frustrates people but it's like i'm not going to let you have an easy you know an easy way through this debate i'm going to let you actually wrestle with the challenge of what you're trying to say even if i agree with you which is probably why Ryan Mack <laughs> doesn't always like talking with me. Yeah. Is like ninety-eight to one hundred percent of the time, I actually agree with Ryan Mack. But sometimes I'll be like, I'm going to push on here because I want you to feel the weight of what we're saying, and this is this is challenging. Um, so I'll I'll do the said contra as much as I can. All of the um, hosts on the podcast like to argue with each other, but two of them <laughs> will just leave the other one nameless. Are of this cut that can sense like they know where the chinks in the armor are and like to take the the said contra approach so i bet you can guess that's father sean exactly not at all love you father mike can't wait to do another one with you that's right we just wax poetic me and father mike i'm sure you do um but that brings us to today's topic uh waxing poetic i have a little book here called the life of faith by father romano guardini von leben des glaubens oh that was the the german german so it's a very little, very little book. It's not, um, it's not deep theology. It's not like intense ex- exploration or dogmatics. He's just trying to wrestle with, paint, explore the experience of faith in a lived life, the experience of faith in different phases or ages of life. And I just have found this very edifying. There are a couple points. Um, being a, a said contra person or a contrarian. There are a couple points I was reading, I was like, ooh, I don't like that. That's actually got a little too much Kant in it, <laughs> a little too much um, kind of you can distance everything because you can't really know type of argument um, at some points. But for the most part, he just does an incredible job of depicting the experience of faith. And if... I'll come back to this at the end, but the one thing that I want to present is he's got this idea of the life of faith, and life is living and growing and adapting and changing. And just as we talked, uh, I believe in um, his Four Last Things book, he talks about different deaths, psychological death, temporal, like your physical death, uh, death of an era, death of an age. There's different types of deaths that we go through kind of analogously to physical death well if that's the case some of these deaths have to happen so that the next age the next phase of life happens and so there's a death to childhood for adolescence to grow out of there's a death of adolescence 
for adulthood to grow out of. There's a death of adulthood for a full, mature, uh, kind of final phase to grow out of. And so from that perspective, Guardini talks about the life of faith and how faith has a genesis and origin and then an infancy and then a childhood, an adolescence, kind of an adult phase, and then finally a a mature, settled phase. So uh, if faith is alive, which we talk about a living faith, it's got this dynamism of growth with certain deaths, and with these deaths come crises. And as you enter from your childhood faith to an adolescent or adolescent to an adult faith, he kind of pinpoints different crises that can occur and how they actually become a, a place for faith to uh, be rerooted, grow deeper, grow clearer. But they're also the place where people lose faith and drift. But that crisis might actually be a longer duration than we would like. So we see a crisis of faith in somebody. And, and this is kind of what I want to say is we see a crisis of faith in somebody and we can just freak out immediately. We see a friend who's drifting and falling away and they're not practicing anymore. And it's just like, oh my gosh, everything is done. He's done, he's out, he's gone. But then there's this element of in this crisis, is his faith actually being purified? Could there be grace working that eventually he will come back with a truer, deeper, more rooted faith? That's our hope. Now that doesn't always happen. Yeah, and I, th- I got a lot of questions in that in terms of delineating what that looks like. But I, I'll just say to maybe circle back to the beginning of this before we dive deeper into the, I think, the central idea, at least the one that was most compelling for me, that crisis, the crisis of faith is proper to the experience of faith, that we yeah. go through these through life. But uh, one of the things that is interesting, so if you don't know Gordini, we've done some podcasts on him, Letters from Lake Como. I'm working on a book that's kind of modeled after that. Um we have done um, some other kind of things, uh, Guardini-esque, uh, but he's a very interesting figure who, uh, born in the late 19th century, I think, I think 1895, somewhere around there, but he grows up, he's kind of this in-between character that bridges the, ni- the great 19th century theologians and then the great 20th century theologians, especially the Second Vatican Council, and he's very influential as this kind of bridge. But one of the things that struck me as you were speaking is how influenced he was by Romanticism. Hmm. which was a literary, cultural, theological movement that happened in the early twenty, early 19th century, so early 1800s. So names like Goethe, Holderin, um, and uh, who are reacting to rationalism. Yeah. So faith being reduced to this kind of abstract um, way of just pure thinking, uh, which is actually a reduction from what the tradition actually talks about. It's very kind mm-hmm. of Cartesian. And so... The Romantics love the organic. They're fascinated by living things and by growth and by form. Um, Balthazar is going to be very influenced by this. There's certain characters, this guy, Johann Adam Moller, uh, Shaban, they're influenced by this Romantic movement that wants to kind of restore life to a purely scientific and soon-to-be technological world where everything is kind of mathematicized, but everything is also sterile, sterile. and dead. And so the life, when he calls it von Leben, on the life of faith, the, the emphasis is really also on life. And then that category of experience comes into play, which is interesting. And there's a lot of parallels here between Luigi Giussani, um, who mm-hmm. really puts forward not just the notion of experience, but also 
the importance of krisis, where we get the word criticism or crisis. It's a Greek word meaning judgment. And it literally means to take hold of something. Yeah. Like that's what you're doing when you're making a judgment. You're, you're grabbing something. And so he's going to go into this and say, let's walk through life as it organically unfolds, the life of faith, which is a living thing. And notice how it moves to these kind of epochal crisis moments, which are actually, uh, it's kind of like keep calm and carry on here. Don't freak <laughs> out. Um, but yeah, he's got some interesting things to say. Yeah, and the reason it's it's kind of personal for me right now is I was observing there's some friends from college. It's kind of a, an ethos sometimes of of they're hitting a crisis point, and now they they want to look back and blame everything that came before for the crisis that's now, especially crisis in faith. You know, friends from college in Steubenville who went there kind of in some degree of, of kind of a zealous young Catholic um, that now looking back, they're like, not everything was great there. And so there's maybe a spirit of complaint and judgment back at a time that's now being uh, completely colored by their immediate crisis. And I, I was amused by observing some of these uh, comments about kind of blaming Franciscan University for, uh, for where they are right now. And I was like, I could substitute any university. Yeah. And this is just the crisis of being 28 to 35 in America with massive crippling student debt, a challenging job economy, facing the challenge of, of family and young to, you know, adolescent kids. I mean, there's just like these life events that happen in that phase that are so hard that nothing really could have prepared you for. And then you're, you're wondering why, why is this happening? And to look back and to kind of blame something in the past. Um, and I think sometimes we look at our faith that if we had an idea of what our faith was supposed to do or supposed to give us, um, and then our expectation isn't satisfied in the immediacy, uh, immediacy of our life. It's like, well, faith was a lie. Religion was a lie. So now I'll just be spiritual but not religious. Um, this religion actually kind of messed me up. I became overly scrupulous, and I became, you know, whatever. Um, I find I find that intriguing because it's it's real, but it's painting a, kind of a, a repainting of your past rather than acknowledging what I think is the the truth of it that God was really present in your childhood in your adolescence, in your young adulthood. But you actually do have uh, to come to know God more and deeper and better. And sometimes we need to be purified of some of the childlike ideas or some of the malformations that we've received from bad, bad formation, bad teachers, bad priests, bad whatever, friends that present some form of religiosity that isn't really the truth of the church. We need to have those kind of purified and, and weeded out at times. Um, to go scripturally, you know, you let the weeds grow with the wheat, and then there's a threshing time, and that threshing time is going to hurt. And so if we have this analogy of, of kind of there are deaths, there's a time where all that's going to be cut away so that more life can come again and the weeds can be pulled away. So I think instead of like freaking out of like this moment defines everything else forward and backwards, recognizing that this moment is actually in dialogue with that moment, not as the interpretive key, but a fruition and a moment continuing in this life of faith. Right. Now, I'm going to 
I'm going to ask a distinction, and then I'm going to say something provocative, okay? But <laughs> I'm going to do it in that order. So the distinction that I want to get to here is, I, 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 I don't think you're going to say this, but we can't envelop everything under the, the auspice of crisis. No. So what a lot of these people are responding to is trauma from scandal or sin. Yeah. But there's also... Which is like, scandalous in right, itself. Right, right. But faith can also atrophy, and apostasy is not crisis. True. Like we we've been doing this long enough to have watched friends walk away. We've also been doing this long enough to know that we're no better. For, I mean, it really is a there, but for the grace of God. Yeah. Go we. We know that. Like we're not you know just hating on this and making judgments. But the crisis is is a moment in the in a life in a in an organic life, and you have to decide mm-hmm. what you're going to do in that. You can't just be like, well, I'm still in crisis and I'm forty. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, no, you've made a decision against Christ at this point. Crisis is a moment. Right. It's it's a moment. And I, I just, sometimes I think that we're we're so kind of culturally um, excessively oversensitive to the, the millennial who's all going through this, the kind of millennial soul, and just wanting, uh, just want you to be psychologically safe, psychologically <laughs> safe, um, that we compromise everything, including the fact that it's like you actually made a decision against Christ by choosing this direction, and it's actually not just the. So the crisis itself is not yeah. comprehensive. That's that's yeah. the, that's and, the and distinction Guardini, I'm looking for. Then he does mention he he doesn't always say like all of this leads back to um, all of it always leads back to God, and there's just this universal salvation. He doesn't say that. Yeah. He says like these crisis moments happen, and faith really can die. Um, if faith is alive, it really can die. Yeah. But he does say it's kind of from this long perspective because there might be another crisis of life which reawakens the impulse to faith because he does think man is primed for faith um, in, in who he is, how he was made. Uh, he's made to know, love, and serve God. And so when another crisis hits after a, an apostasy, which is no longer crisis, a choice has been made and I've entered into a phase of life, there can be other life crises that can reawaken. And then you can see how God in his grace can um, almost in a, in a more profound way make a good out of an evil. Yeah. Um, that, that, oh, happy fault is a real thing. Um, but I, I do like the distinction that it's not a perpetual moment of crisis. Right. And it's interesting because as when I was a young priest, I remember people using the language of father, I'm going through a crisis of faith and I don't hear that as much. <laughs> and I think that there was a, there was a real stigma around it, but we've actually kind of, we're like post crisis, post crit <laughs> in this post critical crisis where everything is now crisis, <laughs> but life is Life yeah. goes through crisis. So, <laughs> so I think it's helpful to distinguish like a faith crisis is something that's really painful and really confusing and likely very desolate that you pass through, especially in these kind of turning points of life. And I can remember distinctive ones um, where that's happened since being a priest, by the way, like this is not just like we, you know, we have kind of the, the, the steel metal jacket that we just wear. And then I would compare that to existential crisis, which can happen to people and can lead them back. But that it's not necessarily a crisis of faith. If you're living a life of mortal sin and you're just like, man, I I'm really miserable playing, Call of Duty 15 hours a day, you know. <coughs> okay, you ready for the provocative comment or you want to Please, read that? Please, no. Give me the provocative comment. 
the example that this is arising out of, and this is not to hate on your alma mater because it's also my brothers and a lot of my friends went there, but I wonder if what is happening is that God is purifying a charismatic-based university for promising perpetual enchantment in the Catholic experience. I don't think that's provocative at all because I actually agree with that. Okay. And I think what I'm finding in my friends is the ones who did not have enchantment in the moment or think that enchantment was going to be ever, forever, are the ones who are fine. Yeah. The ones who actually kind of poked in the moment at this isn't great, that's not, but God's here and working, are fine. But the, the enchantment, and that's, this is broad, so that's probably not everybody. Um, but I think you're, you're onto something there, which brings me to something Guardini said. I think one of the most compelling things he said was something that marks kind of youth and adolescence is a confusion of strong desire with achievement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote that same one down. I have my notes here from a couple <laughs> years ago. That if I have strong desire, I have achieved something. And this goes, you, mean, you can psychologize it, but um, there's been some studies that show just telling somebody you're going to do something often gives you the dopamine hit of having done it because you're just wanting the affirmation of what you've done, not actually having achieved it. Mm. So it's like, I'm going to become uh, an Olympic skier so I'm going to start my training program tomorrow at 5 a.m. And then you tell me, oh, that's awesome. I love it. That's such a great plan. I just got all the affirmation, all the pleasure, all the joy that I needed from your acceptance of my uh, grave, great desire that I actually kind of start. I'm like, oh, this is hard. I don't like it. And then I'm out because I've already received kind of the, the reward um, as opposed to truly wrestling day in, day out, growing, you know, 1%, 1%, 1%, you know, that the athlete is seeking 0.5% improvement every day to be the Olympic athlete. Yeah. Achievement takes day in, day out commitment, and, and the life of faith is no different. And I think, myself included, when I first had my profound experience of faith that was no longer my childhood faith, because he marks childhood faith as the simple reception of the child from what he has been taught, what he receives. So the childhood faith is, yeah, of course this is it. I can see, I can see God in this. I can see uh, that, that what my parents is telling me is, is good and trustworthy. But then there has to be a phase where I start to take ownership of it. And in that phase, when you experience faith, Guardini talks about the, the zealous, the impassioned uh, kind of vigor of the faith that happens in that phase. And there's a good there. But we can falsify that zealous desire by thinking it's already achieving. Yeah. So it's it's like the, the I, I remember this. I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old, and I'm like, I'm a saint. <laughs> I'm a, I'm like I'm like Pierre Giorgio. Yeah. I'm like Saint Therese because I had this great desire in that time to be like them, and I saw the beauty in their lives, and it really spoke. And like what John Paul II says that that desire in your life, listen to that, to the youth. That's God calling you to these great things. But it's that calling, right? It's not the achievement yet. It's the it's the beginning. So when would you place life's crisis moments, kind of naturally? I mean, naturally, you've got your... <laughs> well, your first crisis moment is your, your uh, toddler phase, when you're starting to get your own independence, you're pushing against. Right. But this is pre-rational. So, yeah, I'm talking so about faith. faith. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest one, generally you're going to hit somewhere around middle school, high school, uh, when you're able to exert yourself a little bit more. Uh, you're, you're becoming a little bit more rational, although not much. And you start to think, hey, 
uh, I can figure this out on my own. That's a crisis point. And I think the big crisis now is entering into your adult life is a moment of, of crisis when you actually kind of are more on your own with responsibilities that kind of stop with you um, rather than always being able to kind of go back to your, your parents or your principal or yeah. whoever the authority is. And then I think there's something in the late 20s after you've worked for a while and you've kind of figured out how to exist in the world but you're kind of dissatisfied with everything, I think is another point where people have a lot of crisis. Um, and then you've got your traditional, you know, 40 year old, uh, crisis. No, <laughs> um, Wait, but now but, that I'm getting tattoos but, and buying a motorcycle, <laughs> but some, some middle age type thing. Right. And so we, I mean, we popularize these, we talk about a quarter life crisis. Right. We talk about a midlife crisis. We talk about the tumultuous years of adolescence. I mean, it's kind of, we, we see these. I agree. And what I'm thinking of in the back of my head is I recently um, read, uh, I talked about this Augustine's Confessions, and, and in the notes of it, he talks about how August, the uh, translator is talking about how Augustine is kind of building it structurally on the Roman understanding of different kind of stages of life. Mm-hmm. So childhood, 0 to 15. Adolescence, adolescentia in the Latin, 15 to 30. And then Juventus begins and goes to like mid-40s. Yeah. So technically, I'm still a, a youth. Youth. A Jugend. Um I've read elsewhere that you, the that Juventus as the Latin youth, which we think of as like young manhood or womanhood, ends at 40. But anyways, the point is that when you hit 15, middle school, as you said, early high school, you're going into a crisis of faith. And parents who are listening to this podcast, you cannot stop it. And if you try to control it, either by over-spiritualizing it or by rationalizing it, or therapeutizing it, whatever, making up words here, um, it's only going to do more damage. It'll, it'll guarantee the death of faith. And so accompanying them and walking through that first stage into adolescent faith is actually the faith is going to transform. And it's the same for your friends who are hitting 30 here, who are moving into this kind of young adult life. Um, they're in crisis. And it's accentuated by all the economic, social factors that you talked about. Throw COVID in there, you know, yeah. struggles with vocation, uh, you know, scandal in the church, whatever it might be. So there are things that certainly mm-hmm. kind of punctuate it. Uh, but at the end of the day, like this is this is a very natural thing yeah. for human beings to pass. I'm through. even thinking. I'm looking at some some friends of mine. They've got you know their oldest daughter is about eight, and then the uh, their son's five, and she is asking her mom all these like deep and piercing challenging questions about faith and how do I know if God exists and I can't feel him and I don't see him, I don't hear him. Um, you know, she, she just has this kind of like spiritual sense that is moving her to ask these really challenging questions. And her mom's like, I don't know how to answer these. I'm like, I don't know how to answer these. Yeah. But then you turn around and you watch her and she's teaching her five-year-old brother how to pray Yeah. and teaching him prayers and teach him about God. And so there's this, I love that image for us of the crisis isn't a um, step back and let it wash over or pick the villain that caused me to be in crisis. The crisis is actually wrestling in the moment. And Cardinal or, uh, Newman, he mentions, Guardini mentions uh, that from Newman's point of view, Cardinal John Henry Newman, when uh, he says that faith means being capable of bearing doubt. And so there's, there's a certain element of faith that's almost seen in that crisis where I now experience 
some sort of discord and doubt, but then I also still yeah. hold. But I can experience it without flying. Here's an interesting line from uh, Guardini on, the, um, on adolescence. So this is what he says. He says, faith has a history. So that, that's helpful. He's, th- he's speaking here historically, existentially. Uh, man is a becoming. Faith is a becoming. What is awakened is not defined and complete. It is life, and everything living is in the nature of a becoming. He's talking about mm-hmm. the life of faith here. Faith also becomes and has various phases of development. It has its ups and downs, its periods of crisis, and its calm growth. The becoming of faith is very manifold. It's, it is very manifold in nature. Its history involves the whole man, the individuality. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Here we go. Adolescence. At first, faintly, and parents listening to this are like, yep. <laughs> then with ever greater force and determination, the grand impulse of life awakens to a young man, awakens in a young man or woman, drives him towards those of the opposite sex, causes him to seek a world in all its fullness. He also seeks his own proper task and development of his personality. So it's the grand impulse of a life that is awakened. Here's the problem culturally. And this is why people are stuck in adolescence. Because when you live in a secularized world, which means God does not exist, or at least has no bearing on life whatsoever, then what you get is the ultimate thing, back to your intensity of desire point, the ultimate thing is vitality. Hmm. And that is why eroticism is so dominant and pornography is so compelling. It's not just like these young guys are looking to be evil. It's just the, the, the pulse of life is so drawn out, but there has to be this maturation, as he says, into a new form of faith, which, which only can come through crisis. The young man recognizes that the, in the immensity of this vital resurgence impulse finds in the Christian reality its proper field. And in it becomes a free creative person. Yeah, I mean that is. Well, I love I love that part because it talks about in the Christian framework, he could become a free and creative person, which makes me think of John Paul II when he's working uh, or presenting his theology of the body audiences. He talks about the free man who's truly free. He he possesses himself so much that he can actually give himself huh. is a freedom. That somebody who's never possessed themselves to make be able to make a gift of themselves could even understand or come to um, uh, some sort of they, they they couldn't even consider the pleasure and the joy of that creative gift of self from full self possession. Yeah, and so this vitality that's being awakened, if it's not being shown or offered uh, a greater end than the vitality of eroticism or the vitality of popularity on TikTok or whatever it might be, which we dissipate ourselves in, we will never be able to find that uh, self-mastery so as to make ourselves a self-gift and then actually enter into that love which fulfills and satisfies, which is what it's calling to. John Paul II, again, like he tells the young people, do not be afraid of this desire that is awoken in you. This is God calling you. Do yeah. not be afraid of the greatness that God is calling you to. So I see, I mean, I'm seeing the connection, like the, the patrimony of, of kind of Guardini's thought is this bridge figure. Yeah, and Guardini was a huge, huge influence on John Paul II. He was a teacher of Ratzinger, teacher of von Balthasar. Um, he, he's just a tremendous um, creative intellectual. Yeah. Same with um, Newman. Yeah. Who going back to Newman for a second has that, and Guardini was really influenced by Newman. Newman has a line he says, um, 
to live is to change and to be perfect is to change often. Mm. So your faith is changing. Your relationships are changing um, because things are becoming. That doesn't mean that they're not being because one of the mistakes we make in the kind of postmodern thing is that we've rejected being yeah, and we think everything's just becoming. But there's another great um, atomist named Jean Moreau who was really big on this. Man is a becoming. Man is a gerund, as he would say, to kind of use a, a, a grammatical term. Um, but things are changing, and you're changing whether you like it or not. To live is to change. To be perfect is to change often. So 17-year-old Jacob Machado, who knows what holiness is, God has to change that. Yeah, It has to grow, but it's going to be in a history and history is enveloped within relationship. And I think that's the key for me, uh, whether is this a crisis of faith or is this an existential thing or the death of faith and the difference is that relationship. Because mm-hmm. when people come to me, when I was in the parish, it would say, I'm in a crisis of faith. Usually if they're talking about that and their heart is broken and they're that vulnerable with me, then they're actually in a really good place. It's the ones who are hardened, who are pressing repeat on the same kind of diatribe against whatever institution or person within the church hurt them um that's not a crisis that's just living in resentment you know (laughs) so i love it it makes me think of uh even being in a relationship with yourself with your life of faith before now so i i've looked back (coughs) and that there's like a zealous readiness a quickness to serve a quickness to try something when I was 17, 18, 19, 20 that really stalled out into kind of a, an achadia of a moment of crisis as I'm figuring out my life post. While, honestly, at the very same time, running from the vocation, which I'm in now, um, so there's a certain element of uh, resisting God that is going to cause you to enter into like a state of being that you don't love. Um and so listening to these kind of crisis moments is actually a, a, a movement for us. But I look back now and I have a greater stability in my life, in my uh, just kind of humanly, but spiritually, the ups and the downs, the roller coaster isn't as high. And I look back at the the zeal that I had. And sometimes I look back with kind of some longing yeah. of like, man, I wish, I wish I was just as zealous to, um, argue or you know uh, present the faith to somebody on the street i 18 years old i'm arguing evangelizing apologetics i don't know what you want to call it Uh, this random guy in niagara falls canada with friends from college because we went up there for the weekend and he sees one of the girls crucifix he comes up to her and says you're wearing that you're a christian why and they start kind of arguing debating with him and then one of them comes in we're watching a, a uh, MLB playoff game in the in the sports bar, you know, next to the courtyard where they're at. They say, "Hey, can some of you guys come out. We're having this." And then it's me and my, you know, my friend Colleen are just like going back and forth with this guy. Uh, and I was like so ready to just like, "Yeah, let's go. This I'm ready to share." And then come to moments in my recent life where I felt really timid and shy about like, mm, I don't know if I really want to go for it right now. Yeah. And I'm like, man, where's the where's 18 year old Jake right now? Yeah. Um, and so I can, I can even look back and say, okay, now that I've been purified of some of the errors that can come from that phase, I can also ask and seek the zeal that was there moving into the next phase. Yeah. 
I think it's right on. I, I, I share that same kind of kind of longing for it. And I see it in the young guys, you know, in our younger seminarians. So yeah. I'm just surrounded by this. And when I was in college, it was just the boldness and the yeah. kind of venturing of faith that was that we did when we were 18. The cement starts to harden a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is the great paradox of Christ's teaching that spiritually we need to become like little children. So we're mm-hmm. actually moving the opposite direction as we're getting older. But childlikeness and faith grows through these crisis points of faith that until you come to mature manhood in Christ, there's actually not real childlikeness. Yeah. Like that's part of passing through the stages of life. And that's his phase. The mature faith is actually the really childlike. And it it looks more like what he described as the first childlike faith, but it's Mm -hmm. having, having lived all the other phases. The mature man can just rest in a in a tranquil confidence in God, despite whatever torment is around. Yeah, and I love that. There's the uh, the painting. Um, it's a four four piece um, work kind of collection. I think it's called The Journey of Life, and it's in the it's in D- or DC. PY house. Well, it's, it's also it's in, in Washington the, DC. It's the National the, Gallery. One of the original three prints is in the National Gallery, right. and they're just it's this really beautiful depiction of like an angel. Uh, steering a ship with a, a child in it, um, going through this beautiful garden, and then the next phase is the kind of the adolescent, young, you know, no longer yet, probably ten to you know twenty, whatever, where uh, he the child is now steering, uh, but the angel is kind of there and they're still in the garden, and then you hit the um, kind of like going out on your own phase of adulthood and like everything's starting to break and the the. I think the boat has you know sprung a leak and you know the uh, the rudder's broken and he's just like going towards rapids. But then the last one is that mature faith where and and the angel is in kind of looking over all of these but is now farther distant and at this point he's just up kind of up in the clouds kind of looking down he's observing but he's kind of letting the crisis yeah. happen and then the final one he's through the rapids the boat's absolutely trashed but just floating. And he's floating towards kind of the eternal light. And the angel is now leading him home, kind of p- drawing him home uh, in this kind of tranquil, like floating receptive posture. Yeah, that's a great image. Um, yeah. And again, it's just this journey of life. It's this story of life where everybody's story is a little bit different. And one of the other things, I guess this is my last point um, to sell this book if somebody wants to go read it. He talks a little bit about how uh, the entrance point to faith is different for each person. The object is always the same. The object is God, the unity of God. But sometimes it's truth that draws somebody in, and sometimes it's the ethics of action and right action that draws somebody in to faith. Sometimes it is ordering, the ordering of life that draws people in. Sometimes it's just goodness. Sometimes it's the beauty. And he says all of these are entrance points because all of these are God. And that's going to look a little bit different. Somebody who's kind of having more intellectual conversion, they're going to get to the same end of God if they follow it. But somebody could be just walking into the cathedral and say, wow, there's something here. The beauty has, has arrested me, and, and I am now ready to receive something. And I like that he acknowledges that each person in their soul, in their personality, are receptive to, to various different things. And so I think it's dangerous for us to think, our way, our subjective way to God becomes the only way for somebody to experience God. Mm. Now, that's not to say 
we've got this pluralistic universal path to heaven and everything just leads to the same God. I'm not saying that, but my journey to where I am now was not your story of the Steubenville conference and just having your life turned upside down in an instant, but we were being moved to the same God. And mine started a lot more about kind of the ordering of life. I had like my stoic phase because I saw the goodness and I saw the saints that were just totally kick butt and had an ordered life and just had everything properly set up. And I was like, I'm going to do that. And, but then I became stoic and hardened and I actually didn't have much love. Um, but through that, God drew me into a breaking of my heart and a crisis and then my existential phase, <laughs> which softened me. And even within seminary, and I think maybe you've experienced this as a formator, but I had the zealous phase. And then I entered into, you know, seminary, and I'm now hardened and kind of resentful of that zealous phase. And so for a window within seminary, kind of in the middle, I was resentful of the zealous young seminarians. I was like, you guys are so naive. You don't even get it at all. But I was still so close to it that I resented it. Hmm. Whereas now I've, I've gone beyond that where I, I no longer resent the zealous young seminarian. I'm actually excited for them, but I, I see the trajectory they're on. I see that they're in this story of life. And so I'm like, yes, do be zealous, be excited about the liturgy or this theologian or this parish or whatever it is. Be excited and be zealous because there's going to be a phase where you're going to drop out. You're going to be disenchanted and then you're going to go through this crisis and then you're going to come back and you're going to get re-enchanted. But that's what I loved reading Guardini, is a man who has journeyed through the life of faith, is speaking about the phases. And so now I'm like, oh, I'm just going through one of these. I can take hope in reading or listening to somebody who is further beyond my phase of life, speaking back to me and saying, hey, God's got this. You're in the journey of life. And now I can say, okay, I don't have to control everything right now. Yeah. I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to keep moving. Um, so that's kind of my takeaway personally from it that was so profound of like, wow, this is, this is a man. And, and it's like maybe, maybe we need to be reading um, the, the great minds when they're close to their deathbed a lot more than great minds that are like trying to make their name in academia right now. <laughs> Who are you talking about? <laughs> Myself. No, I'm just um, Myself too. But like we, there's a wisdom from, from the age that we're not honoring always. And it's that wisdom that actually I think seats us in hope and grounds us to not think my crisis right now is now my life and interprets everything before and after this. So yeah. that's my two cents. Very good. I think as a last point, I, the... Um, um, the podcast pairs well with one we did on C.S. Lewis. Remember that on bicycles? Um, enchantment, disen- uh, enchantment, disenchantment, re-enchantment. Anyways, that's... We, we had that one. I don't think I was on that one. In the annals. So yeah. there you go. All right. Shout outs. Well, since it's uh, uh, public, I guess I'll shout out my brother <laughs> coming to seminary joining me. Yeah. So uh, sorry if you didn't want that to go on the podcast, Joe, but uh, it's out there. And uh, shout out to my good friends, Joe and Linda Ann, who I mentioned uh, I stayed with uh, in D.C. I think I actually shouted about on the last one, but um, yeah, that's, uh, that's good. All right. First time in 600 podcasts, I'm going to do something that is going to sound extremely narcissistic. 
<laughs> I'm going to shout out myself. Now, I don't want to shout out myself. What I want to shout out is MAS Academic Press, who just published my book. Ah, you want to shout out your book. I want to shout the out press. the book. <laughs> a Bride Adorned, Mary Church Perichoresis in Modern Catholic Theology. I will do a follow-up podcast on this, but I want to mention this because you can buy it at stpaulcenter.com. They just put out their fall line. It's a little pricey, but it's totally worth it. Please support this uh, press because they do great work. It is my dissertation on Mary and the Church, and it is, but it's been reworked to be uh, more readable for a, a larger audience. And um, so, you can pre-order at the website here. Um, it will uh, come out on Amazon in the next few weeks. But um, it's best not to support the beast when we don't have to, right? Yep. So Go straight to the publisher. Saint. PaulCenter.com uh, to check it out. All of the proceeds of this book go to Patris Corday, which is the Hermitage Retreat Center run by John and Ashley Ryan, our friends. We had them on the podcast a year ago. I think it was yeah. a year ago in Middle June. Over a year. If you want to learn about that, check that one out. Patris Corday. Um, and there's more proceeds that go with the um, when you buy it through the St. Paul Center, Emmaus Academic Press. And so if you are interested in marrying the church, please buy this book. And that is my self-centered <laughs> shout out i need to go through a crisis of faith and become more childlike amen cheers what's the email i still don't know it all right catholic stuff podcast at gmail.com it's been I'm, over a year i'm going to bed thank you jacob <laughs> machado this was a really uh, great selection and uh it's good to be back we're rolling yep. into the semester podcasts are going to keep rolling out now they'll be a little fresher than the pre-recorded ones from the summer but uh thanks for listening yeah peace and blessings mm-hmm.